Section five of Woman in the Nineteenth Century. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Woman in the Nineteenth Century and Kindred Papers Relating to the Sphere, Condition, and Duties of Women by Margaret Fuller. Section five. Woman in the Nineteenth Century, Part Three. This by no means argues a willing want of generosity toward woman. Man is as generous towards her as he knows how to be. Wherever she has herself arisen in national or private history, and nobly shone forth in any form of excellence, men have received her, not only willingly, but with triumph. Their encomiums, indeed, are always in some sense mortifying. They show too much surprise. "'Can this be you?' he cries to the transfigured Cinderella. "'Well, I should never have thought it. But I am very glad. We will tell every one that you have surpassed your sex.' In everyday life the feelings of the many are stained with vanity. Each wishes to be lord in a little world, to be superior at least over one and he does not feel strong enough to retain a lifelong ascendancy over a strong nature. Only a Theseus could conquer before he wed the Amazonian queen. Hercules wished rather to rest with Dejanira, and received the poisoned robe as a fit guerdon. The tale should be interpreted to all those who seek repose with the weak. But not only is man vain and fond of power, but the same want of development, which thus affects him morally, prevents his intellectually discerning the destiny of woman. The boy wants no woman, but only a girl to play ball with him, and mark his pocket-handkerchief. Thus, in Schiller's Dignity of Woman, beautiful as the poem is, there is no grave and perfect man, but only a great boy to be softened and restrained by the influence of girls. Poets, the elder brothers of their race, have usually seen further but what can you expect of everyday men, if Schiller was not more prophetic as to what women must be? Even with Richter, one foremost thought about a wife was that she would cook him something good. But as this is a delicate subject, and we are in constant danger of being accused of slighting what are called the functions, let me say, in behalf of Miranda and myself, that we have high respect for those who cook something good, who create and preserve fair order in houses, and prepare therein the shining raiment for worthy inmates, worthy guests. Only these functions must not be a drudgery, or enforced necessity, but a part of life. Let Ulysses drive the beeves home, while Penelope there piles up the fragrant loaves. They are both well employed if these be done in thought and love, willingly." but Penelope is no more meant for a baker or weaver solely than Ulysses for a cattle-herd. The sexes should not only correspond to and appreciate, but prophesy to one another. In individual instances this happens. Two persons love in one another the future good which they aid one another to unfold. This is imperfectly or rarely done in the general life. Man has gone but little way. Now he is waiting to see whether woman can keep step with him. But instead of calling out like a good brother, you can do it if you only think so, or impersonally, any one can do what he tries to do, he often discourages with schoolboy brag, 
girls can't do that, girls can't play ball. But let any one defy their taunts, break through and be brave and secure, they rend the air with shouts. This fluctuation was obvious in a narrative I have lately seen, the story of the life of Countess Emily Plater, the heroine of the last revolution in Poland. The dignity, the purity, the concentrated resolve, the calm, deep enthusiasm, which yet could, when occasion called, sparkle up a holy, an indignant fire, make of this young maiden the figure I want for my frontispiece. Her portrait is to be seen in the book, a gentle shadow of her soul. Short was the career. Like the maid of Orléans, she only did enough to verify her credentials, and then passed from a scene on which she was, probably, a premature apparition. When the young girl joined the army, where the report of her exploits had preceded her, she was received in a manner that marks the usual state of feeling. Some of the officers were disappointed at her quiet manners, that she had not the air and tone of a stage heroine. They thought she could not have acted heroically unless in buskins, had no idea that such deeds only showed the habit of her mind. Others talked of the delicacy of her sex, advised her to withdraw from perils and dangers, and had no comprehension of the feelings within her breast that made this impossible. The gentle irony of her reply to these self-constituted tutors, not one of whom showed himself her equal in conduct or reason, is as good as her indignant reproof at a later period to the general whose perfidy ruined all. But though to the mass of these men she was an embarrassment and a puzzle, the nobler sort viewed her with a tender enthusiasm worthy of her. Her name, said her biographer, is known throughout Europe. I paint her character, that she may be as widely loved. With pride he shows her freedom from all personal affections, that, though tender and gentle in an uncommon degree, there was no room for a private love in her consecrated life. She inspired those who knew her with a simple energy of feeling like her own. We have seen, they felt, a woman worthy the name, capable of all sweet affections, capable of stern virtue. It is a fact worthy of remark that all these revolutions in favour of liberty have produced female champions that share the same traits, but Emily alone has found a biographer. Only a near friend could have performed for her this task, for the flower was reared in feminine seclusion, and the few and simple traits of her history before her appearance in the field could only have been known to the domestic circle. Her biographer has gathered them up with a brotherly devotion. No, man is not willingly ungenerous. He wants faith and love, because he is not yet himself an elevated being. He cries with sneering scepticism, Give us a sign. But if the sign appears, his eyes glisten, and he offers not merely approval, but homage. The severe nation which taught that the happiness of the race was forfeited through the fault of a woman, and showed its thought of what sort of regard man owed her, by making him accuse her on the first question to his God, who gave her to the patriarch as a handmaid, and by the mosaical law bound her to allegiance like a serf, even they greeted with solemn rapture all great and holy women as heroines, prophetesses, judges in Israel. And if they made Eve listen to the serpent, gave Mary as a bride to the Holy Spirit. In other nations it has been the same down to our day. To the woman who could conquer a triumph was awarded. And not only those whose strength was recommended to the heart by association with goodness and beauty, but those who were bad, if they were steadfast and strong, had their claims allowed. 
in any age, a Semiramis, an Elizabeth of England, a Catherine of Russia makes her place good, whether in a large or small circle. How has a little wit, a little genius been celebrated in a woman? What an intellectual triumph was that of the lonely Aspasia, and how heartily acknowledged! She, indeed, met a Pericles. But what analyst, the rudest of men, the most plebeian of husbands, will spare from his page one of the few anecdotes of Roman women? Sappho, Eloisa, the names are of threadbare celebrity. Indeed, they were not more suitably met in their own time than the Countess Colonel Plater on her first joining the army. They had much to mourn, and their great impulses did not find due scope. But with the time enough, space enough, their kindred appear on the scene. Across the ages, forms lean, trying to touch the hem of their retreating robes. The youth here by my side cannot be weary of the fragments from the life of Sappho. He will not believe they are not addressed to himself, or that he to whom they were addressed could be ungrateful. A recluse of high powers devotes himself to understand and explain the thoughts of Eloisa. He asserts her vast superiority in soul and genius to her master. He curses the fate that casts his lot in another age than hers. He could have understood her. He would have been to her a friend, such as Abelard never could. And this one woman he could have loved and reverenced. And she, alas, lay cold in her grave hundreds of years ago. His sorrow is truly pathetic. These responses that come too late to give joy are as tragic as anything we know, and yet the tears of later ages glitter as they fall on Tasso's prison-bars. And we know how elevating to the captive is the security that somewhere an intelligence must answer to his. The man habitually most narrow towards woman will be flushed, as by the worst assault on Christianity, if you say it has made no improvement in her condition. Indeed, those most opposed to new acts in her favour are jealous of the reputation of those which have been done. We will not speak of the enthusiasm excited by actresses, improvisatrici, female singers, for here mingles the charm of beauty and grace. But female authors, even learned women, if not insufferably ugly and slovenly, from the Italian professor's daughter who taught behind the curtain, down to Mrs. Carter and Madame Dacier, are sure of an admiring audience and, what is far better, chance to use what they have learned, and to learn more, if they can once get a platform on which to stand. But how to get this platform, or how to make it of reasonably easy access, is the difficulty. Plants of great vigour will almost always struggle into blossom, despite impediments. But there should be encouragement, and a free genial atmosphere for those of more timid sort, fair play for each in its own kind. Some are like the little delicate flowers which love to hide in the dripping mosses, by the sides of mountain torrents, or in the shade of tall trees. But others require an open field, a rich and loosened soil, or they never show their proper hues. It may be said that man does not have his fair play either. His energies are repressed and distorted by the interposition of artificial obstacles. Ay, but he himself has put them there they have grown out of his own imperfections. If there is a misfortune in woman's lot, it is in obstacles being interposed by men, which do not mark her state, and if they express her past ignorance, do not her present needs. As every man is of woman born, she has slow but sure means of redress. Yet the sooner a general justness of thought makes smooth the path, the better. Man is of woman born, 
and her face bends over him in infancy with an expression he can never quite forget. Eminent men have delighted to pay tribute to this image, and it is a hackneyed observation that most men of genius boast some remarkable development in the mother. The rudest tar brushes off a tear with his coat-sleeve at the hallowed name. The other day I met a decrepit old man of seventy, on a journey, who challenged the stage company to guess where he was going. They guessed aright. To see your mother. Yes, said he, she is ninety-two, but has good eyesight still, they say. I have not seen her these forty years, and I thought I could not die in peace without. I should have liked his picture painted as a companion piece to that of a boisterous little boy, whom I saw attempt to claim at a school exhibition. Oh, that those lips had language! Life has passed, with me but roughly since I heard thee last. He got but very little way before sudden tears shamed him from the stage. Some gleams of the same expression which shone down upon his infancy, angelically pure and benign, visit man again with hopes of pure love, of a holy marriage. Or if not before, in the eyes of the mother of his child they again are seen, and dim fancies pass before his mind, that woman may not have been born for him alone, but have come from heaven, a commissioned soul, a messenger of truth and love, that she can only make for him a home in which he may lawfully repose, in so far as she is, true to the kindred points of heaven and home. In gleams, in dim fancies, this thought visits the mind of common men. It is soon obscured by the mists of sensuality, the dust of routine, and he thinks it was only some meteor or ignis fatuus that shone. But as a Rosicrucian lamp it burns unwearied, though condemned to the solitude of tombs, and to its permanent life, as to every truth, each age has in some form borne witness. For the truths which visit the minds of careless men only in fitful gleams, shine with radiant clearness into those of the poet, the priest, and the artist. Whatever may have been the domestic manners of the ancients, the idea of woman was nobly manifested in their mythologies and poems, where she appears as Sita in the Ramayana, a form of tender purity, as the Egyptian Isis, of divine wisdom never yet surpassed. In Egypt, too, the Sphinx, walking the earth with lion tread, looked out upon its marvels in the calm, inscrutable beauty of a virgin's face, and the Greek could only add wings to the great emblem. In Greece, Ceres and Proserpine, significantly termed the great goddesses, were seen seated side by side. They needed not to rise for any worshipper or any change, they were prepared for all things, as those initiated to their mysteries knew. More obvious is the meaning of these three forms, the Diana, Minerva, and Vesta. Unlike in the expression of their beauty, but alike in this, that each was self-sufficing. Other forms were only accessories and illustrations, none the complement to one like these. Another might indeed be the companion, and the Apollo and Diana set off one another's beauty. Of the Vesta it is to be observed that not only deep-eyed, deep-discerning Greece, but ruder Rome, who represents the only form of good man, the always busy warrior, that could be indifferent to woman, confided the permanence of its glory to a tutelary goddess, and her wisest legislator spoke of mediation as a nymph. Perhaps in Rome the neglect of woman was a reaction on the manners of Etruria, where the priestess-queen, warrior-queen, would seem to have been so usual a character. An instance of the noble Roman marriage, where the stern and calm nobleness of the nation was common to both, 
we see in the historic page through the little that is told us of Brutus and Portia. Shakespeare has seized on the relation in its native lineaments, harmonizing the particular with the universal, and while it is conjugal love and no other, making it unlike the same relation as seen in Cymbeline or Othello, even as one star differeth from another in glory. By that great vow which did incorporate and make us one, unfold to me yourself your other half, why you are heavy. Dwell I but in the suburbs of your good pleasure? If it be no more, Portia is Brutus's harlot, not his wife. Mark the sad majesty of his tone in answer. Who would not have lent a lifelong credence to that voice of honour? You are my true and honourable wife, as dear to me as are the ruddy drops that visit this sad heart. It is the same voice that tells the moral of his life in the last words. Countrymen, my heart doth joy that yet in all my life I found no man but he was true to me. It was not wonderful that it should be so. Shakespeare, however, was not content to let Portia rest her plea for confidence on the essential nature of the marriage-bond. I grant I am a woman, but withal a woman that Lord Brutus took to wife. I grant I am a woman, but withal a woman well reputed, Cato's daughter. Think you I am no stronger than my sex, being so fathered and so husbanded? And afterward, in the very scene where Brutus is suffering under that insupportable and touching loss, the death of his wife, Cassius pleads, Have you not love enough to bear with me when that rash humour which my mother gave me makes me forgetful? Brutus. Yes, Cassius, and henceforth, when you are over-earnest with your Brutus, he'll think your mother chides and leaves you so. As indeed it was a frequent belief among the ancients, as with our Indians, that the body was inherited from the mother, the soul from the father. As in that noble passage of Ovid, already quoted, where Jupiter, as his divine synod, are looking down on the funeral pyre of Hercules, thus triumphs. Neo nisi materna, vulcanum, parte potentum, sentiet, eternum est, ame quad traxit, ed expers atque immun neuis, nullaque domabile flamma, idque ego defunctum, terra celistibus oris axibium, cunctis mium letabile factum dis fore confido. The part alone of gross maternal flame fire shall devour, while that from me he drew shall live immortal and its force renew, that when he's dead I'll raise to realms above, let all the powers the righteous act approve. It is indeed a god speaking of his union with an earthly woman, but it expresses the common Roman thought as to marriage, the same which permitted a man to lend his wife to a friend, as if she were chattel. She dwelt but in the suburbs of his good pleasure. Yet the same city, as I have said, leaned on the worship of Vesta, the preserver, and in later times was devoted to that of Isis. In Sparta, thought, in this respect, as in all others, was expressed in the characters of real life, and the women of Sparta were as much Spartans as the men. The citoyen, citoyenne of France was here actualized. Was not the calm equality they enjoyed as honourable as the devotion of chivalry? They intelligently shared the ideal life of their nation. Like the men, they felt, honour gone, all's gone, better never have been born. They were the true friends of men. The Spartan surely would not think that he received only his body from his mother. 
The sage, had he lived in that community, could not have thought the souls of vain and foppish men will be degraded after death to the forms of women, and if they do not, then make great efforts to retrieve themselves, will become birds. By the way, it is very expressive of the hard intellectuality of the merely mannish mind to speak thus of birds, chosen always by the feminine poet as the symbols of his fairest thoughts. We are told of the Greek nations in general that woman occupied there an infinitely lower place than man. It is difficult to believe thus, when we see such range and dignity of thought on the subject in the mythologies, and find the poets producing such ideals as Cassandra, Iphigenia, Antigone, Macaria, where Sibylline priestesses told the oracle of the highest god, and he could not be content to reign with a court of fewer than nine muses. Even victory wore a female form. But whatever were the facts of daily life, I cannot complain of the age and nation which represents its thought by such a symbol as I see before me at this moment. It is a zodiac of the busts of gods and goddesses, arranged in pairs. The circle breathes the music of heavenly order. Male and female heads are distinct in expression, but equal in beauty, strength, and calmness. Each male head is that of a brother and king, each female of a sister and a queen. Could the thought thus expressed be lived out, there would be nothing more to be desired. There would be unison in variety, congeniality in difference. Coming nearer our own time, we find religion and poetry no less true in their revelations. The rude man, just disengaged from the sod, the Adam, accuses woman to his God, and records her disgrace to their posterity. He is not ashamed to write that he could be drawn from heaven by one beneath him, one made, he says, from but a small part of himself. But in the same nation, educated by time, instructed by a succession of prophets, we find woman in as high a position as she has ever occupied. No figure that has ever arisen to greet our eyes has been received with more fervent reverence than that of the Madonna. Heine calls her the Dame du Comptoir of the Catholic Church, and this jeer well expresses a serious truth. And not only this holy and significant image was worshipped by the pilgrim, and the favourite subject of the artist, but it exercised an immediate influence on the destiny of the sex. The empresses who embraced the cross converted sons and husbands. Whole calendars of female saints, heroic dames of chivalry, binding the emblem of faith on the heart of the best beloved, and wasting the bloom of youth in separation and loneliness, for the sake of duties they thought it religion to assume, with innumerable forms of poesy, trace their lineage to this one. Nor, however imperfect may be the action in our day of the faith thus expressed, and though we can scarcely think it nearer this ideal than that of India or Greece was near their ideal, is it in vain that the truth has been recognized, that woman is not only a part of man, bone of his bone, and flesh of his flesh, born that men might not be lonely, but that women are in themselves possessors of and possessed by immortal souls? This truth undoubtedly received a greater outward stability from the belief of the Church that the earthly parent of the Saviour of souls was a woman. The Assumption of the Virgin, as painted by sublime artists, as also Petrarch's hymn to the Madonna, cannot have spoken to the world wholly without result, yet oftentimes those who had ears heard not. See upon the nations the influence of this very powerful example. In Spain look only at the ballads. Woman in these is very woman. She is the betrothed, the bride, the spouse of man. There is on her no hue of the philosopher, the heroine, the savant, but she looks great and noble. Why? 
because she is also through her deep devotion the betrothed of heaven. Her upturned eyes have drawn down the light that casts a radiance round her. See only such a ballad as that of Lady Teresa's bridal, where the Infanta, given to the Moorish bridegroom, calls down the vengeance of heaven on his unhallowed passion, and thinks it not too much to expiate by a life in the cloister the involuntary stain upon her princely youth. It was this constant sense of claims above those of earthly love or happiness that made the Spanish lady who shared this spirit a guerdon to be won by toils and blood and constant purity, rather than a chattel to be bought for pleasure and service. Germany did not need to learn a high view of women. It was inborn in that race. Woman was to the Teuton warrior his priestess, his friend, his sister, in truth a wife, and the Christian statues of noble pairs, as they lie above their graves in stone, expressing the meaning of all the bygone pilgrimage of hands folded in mutual prayer, yield not a nobler sense of the place and powers of woman than belonged to the Altvaterte. The holy love of Christ which summoned them also to choose the better part, that which could not be taken from them, refined and hallowed in this nation a native faith, thus showing that it was not the warlike spirit alone that left the Latins so barbarous in this respect. But the Germans, taking so kindly to this thought, did it the more justice. The idea of woman in their literature is expressed both to a greater height and depth than elsewhere. I will give as instances the themes of three ballads. One is upon a knight who had always the name of the Virgin on his lips. This protected him all his life through, in various and beautiful modes, both from sin and other dangers. And when he died a plant sprang from his grave which so gently whispered the Ave Maria that none could pass it by with an unpurified heart. Another is one of the legends of the famous Drachenfels. A maiden, one of the earliest converts to Christianity, was carried by the enraged populace to this dread haunt of the dragon's fabled brood, to be their prey. She was left alone but undismayed, for she knew in whom she trusted. So when the dragons came rushing towards her she showed them a crucifix, and they crouched reverently at her feet. Next day the people came, and seeing these wonders, were all turned to the faith which exalts the lowly. The third I have in mind is another of the Rhine legends. A youth is sitting with the maid he loves on the shore of an isle, her fairy kingdom, then perfumed by the blossoming grapevines which draped its bowers. They are happy, all blossoms with them, and life promises its richest vine. A boat approaches on the tide, it pauses at their foot. It brings, perhaps, some joyous message, fair dew for their flowers, fresh light on the wave. No, it is the usual check on such great happiness. The father of the Count departs for the crusade. Will his son join him, or remain to rule their domain and wed her he loves? Neither of the affianced pair hesitates a moment. I must go with my father. Thou must go with thy father. It was one thought, one word. I will be here again, he said, when these blossoms have turned to purple grapes. I hope so, she sighed, while the prophetic sense said no. And there she waited, and the grapes ripened, and were gathered into the vintage, and he came not. Year after year passed thus, and no tidings, yet still she waited. He, meanwhile, was in a Muslim prison. Long he languished there without hope, till at last a patron saint appeared in vision and announced his release, but only on condition of his joining the monastic order for the service of the saint. And so his release was effected, 
and a safe voyage home given. And once more he set sail upon the Rhine. The maiden, still watching beneath the vines, sees at last the object of all this patient love approach. Approach, but not to such the strand in which she, with outstretched arms, has rushed. He dares not trust himself to land, but in low, heart-broken tones tells her of heaven's will, and that he, in obedience to his vow, is now on his way to a convent on the river-bank, there to pass the rest of his earthly life in the service of the shrine. And then he turns his boat, and floats away from her and hope of any happiness in this world, but urged as he believes by the breath of heaven. The maiden stands appalled, but she dares not murmur, and cannot hesitate long. She also bids them prepare her boat. She follows her lost love to the convent gate, requests an interview with the abbot, and devotes her Elysian isle, where vines had ripened their ruby fruit in vain for her, to the service of the monastery where her love was to serve. Then, passing over to the nunnery opposite, she takes the veil, and meets her betrothed at the altar, and for a lifelong union, if not the one they had hoped in earlier years. Is not this sorrowful story of a lofty beauty? Does it not show a sufficiently high view of woman, of marriage? This is commonly the chivalric, still more the German view. Yet wherever there was a balance in the mind of man, of sentiment with intellect, such a result was sure. The Greek Xenophon has not only painted us a sweet picture of the domestic woman in his economics, but in the Cyropedia has given, in the picture of Panthea, a view of woman which no German picture can surpass, whether lonely and quiet with veiled lids, the temple of a vestal loveliness, or with eyes flashing and hair flowing to the free wind, cheering on the hero to fight for his god, his country, or whatever name his duty might bear at the time. This picture I shall copy by and by. Yet Xenophon grew up in the same age with him who makes Iphigenia say to Achilles, Better a thousand women should perish than one man cease to see the light. This was the vulgar Greek sentiment. Xenophon, aiming at the ideal man, caught glimpses of the ideal woman also. From the figure of Osiris, the Pantheus stand not far. They do not in thought, they would not in life. End of section 5